Welcome from the racing capital of the world, Speedway, Indiana. My name is Nick Sturgeon. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Cyber.Now podcast. I believe it's going to be episode 73. With me, back again for the third time, and I'm very, very happy to continue to get somebody back on a regular (laughs) basis. Lindsay Marie of townhall.com, friend of the show. Thank you for joining once again. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How have you been? Uh, it sounds like just as busy as you've been. <laughs> the Indiana legislature is keeping me quite busy right now in addition to other endeavors, but uh, we'll see how much they can push through in the next couple of days. Uh, which is scary. Uh, hopefully, uh, and I'm sure to even Rob Kendall's <laughs> <laughs> uh, objection, old in his term, not mine. Governor Tax and Spin Holcomb will probably end up signing whatever ends up on his oh, desk. Oh, I'm sure he will, but not to pick on him, but most governors do anyway, so. Yeah. Uh, it's just, the. I know we were doing some back and forth today. We had initially set a couple items for a topic of discussion for tonight, and then yesterday <laughs> happens. I was going to say like the last like three hours happened no more. Oh, I know. It's crazy. Uh, And so we ended up changing our discussion just a little bit. But speaking of yesterday, Senate Bill 436 in the Indiana General Assembly gets through committee and holy smokes, has the, the political world here in Indiana just gone absolutely crazy. Would you care to fill everybody in? (laughs) (laughs) So basically, um, it's being sort of sold as this bill that wants to make sure that all crimes are being prosecuted. But in reality, this is about the GOP wanting to make sure that the crimes they want protected are, like marijuana possession. So basically, um, the bill says that if a local prosecutor chooses to not prosecute um, a group of crimes, that the attorney general can appoint a special prosecutor, send him in, um, prosecute those crimes, and then leave the taxpayers in that little town with the bill. Um, and it has been a whirlwind the last, I guess, you know, today and yesterday. Um, people trying very hard to lobby for this and trying to spin it as something positive. But in reality, it's nothing but a hostile takeover of local government by the state. Uh, absolutely. And I'm kind of sad to say that my state senator, Michael Young, is the author of this bill. And I'm just a little bit ashamed because you're right. This is the state saying, hey, we know, county prosecutor, that you were elected by the people of your county to enforce the laws. But knowing that you have some discretion, but we're taking that discretion completely. Yeah. And the thing is that they're not saying they're taking it away. They're saying if the attorney general decides that there are certain crimes that he wants and believes should be prosecuted, then he can discretionarily make that decision. The thing that no one seems to realize or talk about is that prosecutors make decisions every single day about what cases to prosecute and which ones not to. It's not like they literally enforce every single law. They don't have that kind of time. They don't have that kind of money. And the taxpayers definitely don't have that kind of money either. When you look at it and you look at the standards in which prosecutors are supposed to follow and deciding whether or not to prosecute a crime, they have, there's a long list to consider. Um, they can consider you know, the harm caused by the offense, 
whether or not the punishment or collateral consequences are, are disproportionate to the crime, you know, federal or not federal, um, how much money they have in their coffers at that point to really pay for that kind of um, trial, if they would have to go down that road. And then also people I think outside of the legal world don't realize um, in order for prosecutors to fulfill their obligation of enforcing the law, they do not have to file crime or charges against every single crime. So that's widely accepted. Um, there, there's nothing new about this. The only thing that's different is that um, your senator, uh, Senator Young, is concerned about what's happening in other states. And he cited the reason for this bill is that there are social justice prosecuting going on in other states, and he doesn't want that to happen in Indiana. And my response to that is, you know, I think his time might be better spent focusing on things that are happening in the state he's elected to represent. Um, such as healthcare costs that are skyrocketing, our roads that are crumbling, and workforce development issues. Yeah, and one of my responses to that that I had was, if they were going to have happened, do you think we would actually see some semblance of that happening now? I mean, the social justice stuff, California is a prime example isn't happening yeah, and here. I think, it, our <laughs> sorry. Um, and I think, well, what he's probably, that's okay. Go what ahead. He's probably pointing to is in Philadelphia. Um, there is a DA named, um, Larry Krasner and he's considered to be the most progressive prosecutor in the country right now. And the term pro progressive typically has a democratic connotation to it, but in this case, it's not necessarily that, um, they're considered pro progressive because they're basically being selective about what laws they're telling their staff to actually prosecute. And in his case, um, he decided that he wasn't going to go ahead and prosecute people who were had certain firearm violations, like possession of a firearm. Instead, he sent them to a diversionary program um, because he thought people, for example, there was a guy that had been bit, beaten up. He'd gone to buy a gun um, just for personal safety and didn't realize the laws in that city and that state. And so therefore, he was in violation. This DA is saying people like that, I don't need to send them to jail. That's just going to make their lives worse. They're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their kids over something that they didn't even realize was against the law. Um, in, his, in that case, the state of uh, Pennsylvania, the legislator, went ahead and passed a bill very similar to this one in Indiana that said in, in relation to those specific um, crimes that the attorney general could come in and prosecute them if he wasn't going to do it. So that's sort of where they're getting this idea from and this fear. But um, when we've seen pr prosecutors across the country decide not to prosecute crimes, it's not for things like rape. It's not for these things that they're making it out to be. It's for low-level drug charges, um, sometimes misdemeanors about traffic violations and different things like that. It's stuff that we don't need to be wasting our time and money on, quite frankly. And they're typically crimes that don't, have an actual victim where in this case the victim yeah. would be the state <laughs> in the case which goes and i i'm completely to blame i mean as law enforcement we're there to enforce the laws on the books whether we agree with them or not but you know it, it really does hurt when you say who's the victim and it's the state of indiana yeah, I mean, who is actually harmed by those? Nobody. I mean, it, it's just government overreach. And I would like to ask Senator Young, you know, where's the data that this is an issue right now, where there are tens of victims in the state who feel that they've been wronged and that the state has not 
you know, filed charges on their behalf to get either their money back or to just get damages. I've not seen anything like this. I've not seen any stories about victims that are outraged about, you know, their local prosecutor not handling things a certain way. Um, if he's putting this much time and effort into this, we need to have some kind of data that shows why are we even messing with this other than I have some fear about things that are happening in other states far away. Yeah, well, and I would point out too, I know here in Marion County, and it's gotten worse since I left uh, the police department, it's not actually the prosecutors to blame. It's the judges that are more so to blame because they won't even hear those cases. Um, the prosecutors, just like the law enforcement officers, are there to enforce the law. And they do that. And even the, as a police officer, there is some discretion on what can be enforced. Because at the end of the day is what's going to be best for that person? What's going to be best for society? And if we're talking about, you know, rapists and murderers getting off, okay, yeah, definitely let's have a conversation about that, but we're not. And to your point, there's the data is just not there. And I, even from a couple years ago when I was a reserve in Speedway, they're like, uh, you know, juvenile cases, for instance, the, the judge said, well, we're not going to, to take them because we feel like getting them in the system. And part of that is correct. Once they're in the system, they, these individuals get exposed to some things. And the intent was good, but when there you have a juvenile who is, you know, shoplifting hundreds of dollars from a store and you can't take them, you know, that's a little frustrating to the officers, but it's not the prosecutor's fault in that case. It's the, the judge of the juvenile court who has said, this is what I am going to be hearing. So if we're going to address it at the prosecutor level, Let's also take a look at how the judicial system in the state is working, and especially Marion County, when there's huge problems with the way that judges are let it, you know, with these plea deals. And I've seen it, I've had, you know, some solid cases get plea down on some actual. Instances where you know there's people harmed. These are you know really bad individuals getting you know put down to very minor crimes comparatively. That's frustrating, and that not the only reason, but that, I think that's part of the reason here in Marion County. Our crime rate is so absolutely out of the yeah. Out I think of you make a good point because um, also when we talk about plea deals. 96% of people actually will make a plea. They, and they'll plead guilty in exchange for lower sentencing instead of actually using their constitutional right to have a fair trial. And what that actually does is it makes um, the prosecutor even more powerful because they know that. They know that once they've charged somebody with a certain crime, they go to them, they try and make it an agreement, and they start to threaten. You know, if you don't take this deal, I'm going to add this charge on. And it has a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years. So if you want to take this to court and make me go through all the loopholes of proving you're guilty beyond reasonable doubt, and you make me do that and spend my time and money, I'm going to make sure your life's living hell. And so they keep stacking on charges. And there's this concept mm -hmm. called the trial, trial penalty, where you can look at people that pled guilty 
and they did like an agreement versus actually went to trial. And the discrepancy in how many years they were sentenced is insane. Um, and it's just a really, really sad thing that when people try to exercise their constitutional rights, they end up in jail for a longer period of time and they end up getting screwed over it. Yeah. And that is one of the things and officers are to blame, prosecutors are to blame here as well. So is they get so focused on the conviction and their conviction rate and their careers that they do end up stacking on charges. And, and the other thing is even in, and this is my fear is that if I decide to, you know, use my constitutional right, should something go horribly wrong, which I hope it never does. uh, But, when, you know, my fear is even asking for an attorney that is turned against them. Only the guilty call their attorney. All the guilty, you know, want their attorney present. Why don't you work with this? Why aren't you cooperating? That's wrong. That is the assumption of innocence completely. Oh, yeah. In America today, it seems like no matter if you're watching, you know, something on TV or at a local level, the presumption of innocence no longer exists. And normally when I talk about that, I talk about cash bail, but it is also even before you've even been arrested. And I think people don't really understand Miranda warnings and when they're supposed to be given. Because just because a cop has not read you your Miranda warnings does not mean at that point things you're saying can't be used against you. Um, It's a very fine line in in what's um, considered time in which they have to do that, which is number one, they're going to question you and potentially use that evidence against you. Um, and number two, that the re- a reasonable person would feel like they could not leave because they're being detained. So maybe they've not handcuffed you. Maybe you're sitting there, but if you're surrounded by cops and they all have their guns drawn or say you're sitting amongst five of them and there's one of you, a reasonable person might say, I don't think that I actually could leave peacefully at this point. In that case, you can't um, assume that just because they've not read your warnings to you that you're fine. Mm-hmm. Typically, at least the way that I operated is if the handcuffs go on, that definitely Miranda from that point on, because the their freedom of movement is completely cut off at that point. But as they're building probable cause, oh, yeah. they're still taking notes. They're still trying to figure out what's going on and building probable cause everything up from that to you know to your point is still building that probable cause it's only again after that point of handcuffs going on um or you know the the person is being detained for further investigation is usually when the miranda rights will come because at that point if you know whether it's felony or misdemeanor is when the the testimony could potentially, if Miranda isn't read, hurt, and I say this in looking at it from the other side, but hurt the officer's case at that point. Yeah, and I've even heard cases of people actually being arrested, handcuffs on, and they still never had the Miranda warnings read to them because the cops at that point, for whatever the the case was, I think it was like someone had an unpaid ticket from like years ago and he started talking about Fourth Amendment rights, and then they decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and take you downtown. Um, they never read him his rights, and he kept saying, I'm going to get this thrown out, and get it thrown out. It was like, no, 
because those cops were never actually going to question you for anything they were going to use against you, they didn't have to, but you just kept talking. Um, and so you basically incriminated yourself. Yeah, even more. And that's, yeah, yeah. And that, that is a good distinction to make on Miranda. It's the officer's questioning. So if I am at that point where they're going to be detained or be taken in, and they said, you yeah. have the right to remain silent. <laughs> there, That has nothing to do with you freely giving that information up, but it is on the questioning of, or to the, the suspect by the officer is where the Miranda warning comes into play. <laughs> that went off on a tangent. So, man, that, we got completely, <laughs> yeah, completely off on a tangent, but that's okay. I, I, I love, it's been a while since I've got to talk a little bit of, of crime and, and legal stuff to, <laughs> to steal from Hammer and Nigel. <laughs> Hopefully, I, I won't get a cease and desist oh, order like they got yeah, from about- Morgan Freeman. <laughs> you should frame it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, you know, what, going back to uh, Senate Bill uh, four, yeah, forty uh, four thirty six. You oh, know I mean- it's bad. You just absolutely know it's bad when the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, the ACLU, the Indiana Public Defenders Council, and a few more civil liberty groups are all opposing you know this bill. No, sorry. That the thing bad. that I understand sorry, is I thought conservatives were supposed to be about shifting power back to local government, not taking it away. I thought they were, you know, pro or I didn't know they were pro big government. And the thing is, not only are they coming in and they're deciding to ex- or exercise their authority and they're overtaking local government, but they're making the taxpayers pick up the tab for it. And that's just simply not fair, I don't think. I don't. Yep. I mean, to me, this is just crazy. I don't know how much a special prosecutor costs. I assume he's not cheap. So when they come in and um, spend, you know, maybe months on a murder trial or something or whatever case that they're trying to come in and swing their weight around, that's not going to be cheap for the local taxpayers. Yeah, it, it is not because they're bringing in a staff of attorneys. Yep. To help them. So <laughs> you've got paralegals, you've got staff attorneys on top of the overly priced and at the end of the uh, day, special prosecutor. I wonder if when they're bringing these people in and we're going to have to pay for them, are we really getting a good return on our investment? Like if prosecuting less than an ounce of marijuana is worth bringing in a special prosecutor for, is that what they're doing really going to make a big difference in society? Is it saving lives? Is it making Indiana a better place? Is it really making a big enough difference for us to justify that cost or to even just justify the cost of giving the power back to the state? You know, I don't like the idea of federal government coming in and telling Indiana what to do, but I sure as hell don't like Indiana coming into Vandenberg County and telling us what to do. I want my government as local as possible. I absolutely agree. Yep. And and I think we've talked about the this similar subject before, but it's a whole lot harder to look your neighbor in the eye who's a councilman or the prosecutor or some other elected official when they do something that goes against the town when you when you're there at the grocery store at church and they have to look these people in the eye that you're going against. 
Sure. I mean, we see it all the time. There and is I the think power of also, local politics. Also, they're solely focused on trying to not do what other states are doing, but they're not looking into why those states are choosing to prosecute or not prosecute certain crimes. They're not looking at the collateral consequences of giving somebody, um, you know, a sentence and sending them to jail for 30 days. They're not looking at the fact that that's going to be on the record. They're not going to be able to get a job. They're going to lose their kids because they're behind bars and can't pay their bail. You know, they're going to lose their what's their community, basically. And we know when people have a loss of community, that leads to really bad things. It leads to increased crime. It leads to increased drug use. It leads to a lot of really bad behaviors. So are we really doing more harm than good with this? I mean, I think that's something to be looking at. I absolutely agree. And I, it, even going back to the state following the federal government to raise the illegal purchase age of tobacco to 21, I'm like, seriously, folks? I mean, I about blew my lid when I listened to the state of the state a couple weeks back. And there's old Governor Holcomb pushing what you would consider to be more liberal policies, not conservative policies. I mean, I, I love it when Republicans and conservatives say, you know, facts, not feelings, facts, not feelings, but they don't ever use facts when it comes to criminal justice matters. They do not legislate based on that. They only legislate off of emotion. And especially also things like vaping and raising the smoking age. It's like smoking right now, teen smoking use is the lowest it's been probably ever. And it's like, why are we doing this now? All you've done is create a new class of criminals from everyone age 18 to 21. You've now given police the authority and sort of instructed them to pull people over that look under 21, maybe they're smoking and stop them, um, maybe search them. And we saw in New York with Eric Gardner, he actually was stopped because he was selling, they believed, illegal cigarettes. And look how that turned out. I don't think this is a good idea whatsoever. And no one thinks through these things. Oh, but, you know, those rush to judgment. Oh, we've got to stop this epidemic on vaping when it turns out even the CDC has come out in the last couple months to say, well, it isn't actually the the legit stuff. It's the black market THC infused vape pens or oils or whatever I don't vape that are causing the, these issues. But yet we're still seeing these policies pushed. And the other thing, on this age to 21 is if the concern is the 14 to 17 year olds smoking, what the hell is raising the age to 21 going to do? It's not going to do a damn thing. Exactly. As you said, it's just creating another class of criminals and it's insane. Absolutely insane they're admitting that laws don't work because if it's really about age 14 to 17 or something, they're saying, well, as of now, the law being 18 and older is not working. So let's increase it. Well, you've just admitted that laws against this kind of stuff do not work. It's just mind blowing to me. And then I love when I hear they want to ban flavored vape pods and different stuff. And it's like, they claim that the reason the teenagers are vaping is because they like the taste of it. It's like, I don't think that's actually why. Um, just like with cigarettes, I don't think teenagers start smoking because they love the taste of tobacco because it's so good. Everyone knows that. I mean, 
and they're making a run on menthols. Exactly. <laughs> we need to out one menthol cigarettes. <laughs> it is just idiocracy. Oh God. I, um, I know Carly Macer, who's had just announced that she's not running for house 92, which is cover speedway. And I love Carly. She's a Democrat. There's some few things that I don't agree on because they do follow more of a, a traditional progressive policy, but outside of a couple of those things, I think she's great now. And I actually said this to Jim Lucas at the hammer and Nigel event a few months ago. It's like, if Carly had the money, which is the biggest thing, any of the democratic opponents against Holcomb, if she had the money, she is so well liked and respected. I think she could give Holcomb a, a run for his money if she was able to overcome that deficit that most of the Democratic candidates for governor are going to have. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've been saying it for weeks now on Indiana Issues and on WABC. I just think that Democrats don't hate, hate Holcomb enough to do anything about it. I, I say this all the time that I think Rob Kendall hates Eric Holcomb more than the Democrats do. I would and agree with that. <laughs> that says something, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, after Pence, Holcomb seems like this breath of fresh air in some aspects to a lot of people because he's not passing things like Rifra. He's not doing anything insanely controversial that's getting us in the national spotlight looking like morons. Um, so, and also with tax policies and spending, I mean, he's not that far off from a Democrat in a lot of ways. Which is probably why they like him. <laughs> exactly. I just don't think he's done anything egregious enough for them to really have this giant campaign against him, this crusade that's going to be effective. And yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's that's probably a good thing for all parties across the board that he's not been insanely controversial and done terrible things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes no news is good news. And you ask the average person, you know, do you like the governor? They probably can't name him. Um, but because they can't say anything bad about him, they probably think all is well, basically. Yeah. But let's not forget the Indiana Department of Veteran Affairs scandal that has happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. There has been plenty. But but to the average person, though, I don't think that they're seeing anything or they're remembering anything. Whereas like a lot of people, I think in our little bubble, we're so used to hearing about it and it's our daily life that we can probably make tally lists of all kinds of stuff he's done wrong, but it's been not, nothing has risen to the level of the stuff that Mike Pence did. I'll put it that way from a media perspective. Yep. I I, I would agree with that. What's also funny about this whole thing with the AG. (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Is the, yeah, well that, you know, we, we don't know if Curtis Hill is going to be eligible to, run because they're still waiting on the sentencing basically or the the um the recommendation the, the from the official yeah recommendation for uh the misconduct <laughs> that happened supposedly allegedly well i mean and that makes me that makes me think about how aren't these republicans putting the cart before the horse because like what if in some crazy land like a couple years from now a democrat comes in office and they have a Democratic governor and maybe an AG. And it's like, what if that Democratic AG wants to come in and tell these Republican counties what they have to enforce and what they can't enforce? And they're going to come in and prosecute gun crimes that maybe the local Republican governor or local Republican prosecutor wouldn't have actually prosecuted. 
especially when, you know, there's always these bills to change gun laws that Republicans are resisting. Well, if the tides change, do you really want that power in your enemy or your opponent? Yeah, it's just like at the the federal level when the Democrats put in the filibuster rule and then the next cycle comes in, boom, the Republicans have the filibuster rule because they have the majority. And it, the Democrats are like, oh, crap, what did we do? Or the overuses <laughs> of executive orders. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, it's it's fine when it's your party but and your team. But, oh, my goodness, as soon as the team changes, we've got to go out and find any reason at all to impeach. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that's a loaded oh, question. <laughs> oh, goodness. That that circus that is this impeachment trial in the Senate. I, that's a whole nother episode or I think two. That's a season. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! I guess sort of, kind of um, dovetailing with the impeachment and some of the things that we we've seen come to light here because of some of the evidence that's. and I use the term evidence very, very loosely um, that have been, that has been used in the house to pass the articles. It's what they're trying to get more of in the Senate hearing, but we had the IG's report come out about the, the abuse is not, and not one 17, if not 18, abuses by the FBI with the FISA court and their application for a FISA warrant to go after Trump. You know, we This is something I, I started to hit on a little bit in my last episode because this thing is just a massive conversation. It, is, it isn't just this one. We're, this is Snowden. This is Manning. There's a lot of examples out there where the federal government and who knows how many times that the court has been lied to and fallen for it. We've, we know of 17, maybe 18, depending on who you talk to of absolute malfeasance in the abuse of the, the FISA warrants. And you know, from the libertarian perspective, and I'll, I'll let you talk on that a little bit. How, I mean, how does a president who wanted to make this thing permanent in 17, when it was up for a renewal, that was a quote unquote victim of this abuse? <laughs> where is the logic in wanting to make this thing permanent? And uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about Snowden and and some of the and what he's done. Kind of give me your take on FISA and how you see that playing out here in the as a result of these impeachment hearings. I honestly don't think anything's going to change. Um, I think people are going to write columns about it. They're going to go on TV and rant about it, but number one, I think the majority of people don't have the power to actually change this. Um, I think this is a part of government that's beyond um, the scope that most people can imagine and that have access to. Um, When it comes to talking about Trump and how he can sort of justify this or be okay with this now, 
it's interesting because there's a there's a principle that a lot of Marxists believe, and it's called false consciousness, which basically means that people vote against a bill or a candidate or something that would typically be in their best interest. So, for instance, like loggers um, in an area that's very maybe it's impoverished that just lost their job, they would vote for Republicans. And most people would say, well, why would you vote for a Republican when the Democrats are going to give you welfare and food stamps? And the reason is because they vote on their principles and their principles are about hard work and independence and not depending on the government or anybody else. Um, so there's a lot of studies that show people actually make decisions not on issues or um, one instance with the government. It's about these deep principles. And so I don't really know Trump's principles exactly. I went to, I went to a website. I could exactly find them very easily anyways. But if he really does have this idea and believe that this America first agenda, I think that does back up then the argument for, I think you could use that to back up the idea that we should have a FISA um, warrant in this FISA court. Or if you are very pro um, law enforcement military and you come from a more right wing background, I think there might be something there where you could justify this. Um, I can't justify it, but that may be why he's not as outspoken and anti this particular type of system as you would expect. Okay, we are going to stop the conversation right there. I know it was just getting good. We've got much more to talk about. I do want to thank Lindsay for taking time out of her weekday evening to come on the show to have this conversation. Anyway, thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Lindsay Marie. If you want to join in on the conversation, go to the show's webpage at cybernowpod.com, Facebook, and Twitter. If you want to get a hold of me directly, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore Polititech, or you can email me at nick at the Finally, go to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform to subscribe, rate, review, and don't forget to share the show. Again, I promise I'll come back next week with part two of my conversation with Lindsay. Until then, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.